surprise, once again, in the book of Acts. And let's see here. Um, we'll be in Acts chapter 23. And we'll start in verse 10, even though we were getting ready to transition into verse 11. We'll start in verse 10 here in just a moment. But Paul, once again, has been sharing his faith, albeit that he is arrested, but he is still sharing his faith. And if you remember, whenever he had been beaten, as we talked about, he was beaten unmercifully, and they were carrying up the steps, he thought that maybe there would be one last attempt in which he could maybe reason with the people, maybe somehow, some way he could reason with the people, and uh, there wouldn't be any kind of insurrection. As people wouldn't suffer, they might be able to better understand what he's doing because everywhere it seems that Paul goes, there are those people that are lying about him. They are saying that this fellow is teaching everything, everything contrary to the law of Moses. He is desecrating the temple. He are teaching, he's teaching things, I guess, a better way to say that, things that are contrary to the traditions as well as to the law. And Paul... People having never met him are hating him because of this. But that shouldn't be surprising because Jesus even said, if they've hated me, they'll hate you. If they've lied, think about it. If they've lied about Jesus, how much more are they going to lie about us as his people? But Paul is earnestly trying to teach them. And if you remember as well, they brought him together with uh, the Sanhedrin, I guess, and before uh, a governor, uh, Felix, as a matter of fact, they bring him before him. And in so doing, because I, I want to make sure I don't get Felix and Festus mixed up here because he's going to be before uh, Festus here in just a moment. But they go before him, and as they're trying to figure out what's going on, you remember last week, Paul perceived uh, that the people that he was talking with at the time, that part of them were of the more aristocratic or maybe some more the well-to-do and the priestly order of the Sadducees. Now, it's not to say that every person that was a Sadducee was a priest, but a lot of them were. And then you had also the Pharisees. And the problem between the two groups here is that the uh, Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, which is the prominent tenet of the Christian faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus, not just simply killed, but Jesus resurrected from the dead. Okay, and then there's a hope in Jesus Christ that we too will be resurrected from the dead. The promise is eternal life because Jesus Christ paid for our sins, died in our place, our faith in him, okay? Our sins being judged in him and his righteousness being given to us. We are resurrected from the dead and we enjoy internal, eternal life because you think about even John three sixteen, one of the most quoted scriptures in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, Paul was fine uh, with a lot of folks until he talks about the resurrection. Sadducees get upset about that. And also whenever he talks about God's love for other people other than Jews, that God loves all people, that God's salvation is being offered to everyone, okay? It's neither Jew nor Gentile, okay? Because of that, this began to stir up a great problem within the people, and they have sought to kill him many times. So anyway, um, Paul pits the 
Sadducees and the Pharisees against each other because he says, I'm here because of a question of the resurrection. And he was. He just seized the opportunity. So there's a great dispute between the two groups. The Pharisees finally say that there's no fault that they find within him. And regardless of whether they did or not, they certainly wouldn't concede on that because they want the Sadducees to be silenced. Okay? So Paul talks about his lineage having been Pharisee, descendant of Pharisees. And so the dispute got so great, if you'll take a look in verse 10, Acts 23 and verse 10, it says this, now when there arose a great dissension, okay, now great means that they were absolutely getting ready to come to blows, the commander, okay, fearing lest Paul might be pulled into pieces, that's how bad it was by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So he's trying to protect Paul. Why is all of this protection taking place? Because Paul is a Roman, a Jew 100%. But being from where he was from, being because of his lineage, he was also born a Roman. Uh, Whether buying your citizenship or being naturally born, either way, you're still Roman and you are protected. And you are not allowed to just go and take a Roman and do with them as you please, much less bind them, scourge them, or kill them. So, anyway, he says, go and get him. So verse 11, they decide that they're going to try to ambush. It doesn't matter how much in their minds, those that are against Paul, it doesn't matter how much they're going to try to protect Paul, they're going to do what they can to destroy Paul. Now, people, I can't help but believe that you're seeing something uh, more than just human anger. The Bible says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and high places. I believe that there are many forces at work that are trying to kill Paul because they are bound to determine wherever he goes, we're going to kill him. They're even going to take O's. We're going to kill this fellow. You know, the sanctity of life was, was not held very high, I guess, in this particular time. They might have said one thing, but they did another. So in verse 11, God blessed the reading of his word. It says, but the following night, the Lord stood by him, that is by Paul, and said to him, he says, basically, Paul, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified before me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness of me in Rome. And if you go back to chapter 19, Paul also knew. He said, uh, whenever he was speaking and sharing with the people, you remember how they were telling him, Paul, you're going to be bound. You're going to wind up, you know, being arrested and Lord knows what's going to happen to you. And he said, I'm not only ready to be bound, I'm ready to die for my faith. But Paul had said that he knew in every place where he was going, this was the will of God for this to happen. So all of these I guess you would say chains, even though he might physically not be in chains. He's still under arrest at this moment, and this is the will of God. And Paul would say back in chapter 19 that he knew that he not only needed to go to Jerusalem, but he also said that he was going to have to go to Rome. In other words, God was going to use Paul to testify in the highest courts of the land. There would be a witness for Christ even before Caesar. Okay? So we're going to see this in just a moment. So the Lord comes to him, and the Lord is encouraging him. He's letting him know, Paul, it's okay. It's okay. Haven't abandoned you, haven't forsaken you. Paul, understand this all has a meaning and a purpose. 
Just like Christ, whenever he was bound, just like Christ, whenever he suffered, God has never forsaken his children. He's not away from Paul. He hasn't forgotten about Paul. He is with him, and he's going to see him through this. And Paul, it is my will that you also testify of me in Rome. So he says, you must also bear witness, that is witness to Christ Jesus, in Rome. Verse 12, and when it was day... Some of the Jews, listen to this, banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 of those people who took that oath. They formed this little conspiracy. Verse 14, they came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will neither eat nor drink until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we will be ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, does this seem all nice? And I mean, I'm just trying to figure it out. You know, this to me sounds like a Shakespearean play. I mean, I mean, think about it for a minute. We shall lie and wait. We have bound ourselves. And we want No, the point is, is what kind of people just sit around and say, yeah, I'm going to come up with this big conspiracy. I, we want to make sure this person's dead. I mean, what kind of venom, what kind of hatred does it take in your hearts? And then to go to the high priest and then to go to the leaders of your nation and say, hey, we've decided we're going to murder somebody. And they're like, oh, yeah, sounds good. We're in it with you. This just shows you how dark the heart really can be. And that these people who were sitting as leaders of the nation of Israel, these people who were supposed to be proclaiming the truth of God, revealing the will of God to people, and even the heart of God for that matter, that they are not in any way reflecting the very nature of the God they claim to serve. So anyway, they said, this is what we're going to do. So take a look at verse 16. It says, so when Paul's sister's son, now wait a minute, we're learning about family now. We're talking about his nephew, right? So sister's son heard of their ambush. He went and entered the barracks and he told Paul. Okay, now this is kind of an interesting thing. When you go back and you, and you study this and you see what scholars have to say about it, we don't know exactly what the relationship was, except this, that if the person was there and the person, obviously his family, would have some access to Paul, why is he looking, why is he taking care of Paul? People say, well, he was family. Well, actually, some people have purported or put forward this idea that whenever Paul had said in Christ Jesus that he suffered the loss of everything, that one of the things that he was talking about being that good Jew, that good persecutor of the people of the way that whenever he became a convert he probably lost his family as well that is they weren't with him and what was going on and a lot of people see here how would this young man have access to the knowledge of these people that were going to attack him it probably was that a lot of these people that did not like paul anymore he actually brushed elbows with those people now do we know this for a fact no it's just a theory but it would lend credence to how he would know this, and it would also show that just maybe Paul's sister still had a soft spot for him, and he still saw them, and all these kind of things. But either way, this knowledge comes to his nephew. He hears about this plot, something that they would have kept pretty secret, because they don't want it to get out to the authorities. So, 
after he tells this to Paul that these 40-plus people are going to turn around and ambush you and try to kill you, then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell. Um, I guess I need to flip the page. By the way, I'm studying out of one of my favorite study Bibles. This is on the New Testament, but it's the Evangelical Parallel New Testament. It has eight translations in front of you. It's pretty neat to study out of if you're interested in it. So he goes to tell him. So it says, so he took him and he brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Verse 19. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is it that you want to tell me? And so he said to him, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him, but do not yield to them. For more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart, and he told him, he said, don't tell anybody about this, don't share this information. Verse 23, and it says, and he called for the two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and to bring them safely to Felix, the governor, and then he writes a letter to him. Okay. I want to go back and I wanted to make a point here. Okay, so the commander let the young man depart, but anyway, this information is brought to him. There's a reason, people. Yes, there's a conspiracy that's going on here. But this commander is actually in a very precarious situation. If he allows something to happen to Paul, he's in trouble. He has to do everything in his power to protect Paul as a Roman citizen. So yes, we have God's divine hand at mo in motion here protecting Paul, but understand this guard needs to make sure for whatever reason, if he just simply has information, even if it was told him, or even if he didn't have this information, if he has not done what he could well do to protect Paul, he's in serious trouble. So as a Roman citizen, we once again see that protection taking place. But now Paul is going to be sent to Governor Felix in this particular area, who was looking, I believe, over Judea and Samaria is who he was over. If I, my notes were correct, I don't have them with me. But Felix was not known as being a very gentle, warm, lovey, dubby kind of individual. He was known for being cruel and somewhat harsh. But he also understands the seriousness of his office. So anyway, they get these people together, they write a letter, and they're going to send Paul over to Felix. All right. So they send a letter to Claudius Lysias, and it says to the most excellent, uh, okay, Claudius sends a letter to the most excellent governor Felix. He says, greetings. Now listen to what they have to say about Paul. It says, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Okay, so that sets the stage. And when I wanted to know what reason they accused him, I brought him before the council. I found out that he was accused of something, okay, accused concerning questions of their law, 
but had not, not charged him with anything against uh, him that is deserving death or chains. And whenever it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for this man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges that they have against him. Now, this is going to be something interesting in the future. Paul has been sent. Yes, he's delivered. He knows that he is a Roman, so Felix is going to take care of him. But as he comes, what he's going to do is make sure that these accusers, rather than being able to ambush, they're actually going to have to sit in a court of law, and they're going to have to explain themselves. Just like in Jewish law, all the more in Roman law, you have to have a charge. You have to have a reason for bringing this person before the court system. Secondly, it needs to be something that can be substantiated. In other words, is there a good reason that we're here? And third, if you're asking for a person to be killed, you better lay something on pretty thick. And knowing that these, these people want him dead, this is the reason why I keep bringing up the, the Roman aspect of Paul's lineage, is they want him dead, but if there is nothing deserving of death in him, they cannot kill Paul. To kill Paul means they themselves are going to be killed. You can't lay hands on it. And by the way, let me uh, go back and talk about death for just a minute uh, concerning uh, Romans and things like that. Roman citizens, unless there was something incredibly grave very few Roman citizens were crucified. You had to understand that, that crucifixion was considered for the lowest of the low, the dregs of humanity, those people that were seen as human flotsam or, or refuse or garbage, okay? So you would say slaves or even people less than that, people who had done horrible things against the Roman government would only be considered worthy for being crucified. There were many ways in which you could kill a person, but crucifixion was supposed to be one of the most demeaning. It was supposed to be that death by which people suffer the most, they would be shown the most shame, and they would be put out to hang as literally decaying flesh. So the fact that Jesus Christ is crucified, understand he had done nothing deserving of it. Even Pontius Pilate said, you know, I, I don't see a reason to kill this person. But they cried out, we want him crucified. See, it wasn't we just want him dead. We want him to suffer. We want him to be humiliated. And I'm not trying to draw this up too much, but I want you to understand that whenever the Romans created crucifixion, and I'm, and I'm not saying that other people throughout the years hadn't hung people on trees. I'm not saying that crucifixion didn't take place in other cultures. What I am telling you is that the Roman people made it down to almost an art form. They made it as barbaric as they could possibly make it. The idea was that you took the human being and you stripped them down naked. Yes, Jesus Christ, if he followed anywhere, any norm in society, he was not crucified with a loincloth. He was laid bare to humiliate him. And whenever you put him up on the cross, the idea was to put, uh, contort the body in such a way and to pull so hard on those bones that you were in absolute torment. We use, and you've probably, we, we've talked about this, and you've probably heard Bible teachers even talk about it, the very term excruciating, and we should be careful when we use that term excruciating, was coined from crucifixion. Ex crux, that is out of the cross. Excruciating is describing the pain a person feels when crucified. So when you say I'm in excruciating pain, 
It's the most horrible pain imaginable to man, is what you're trying to say. It would be the pain that people would feel upon the cross. And the idea was for them not to suffer quickly, okay? The idea was to keep the person alive and to have them suffer and asphyxiate, suffocate. And as horrible as it sounds, the breaking of the bones in the legs so that they couldn't get up to catch their breath was actually a very merciful thing that they could do. So whenever we talk about death, you know, many times we think about Romans, the idea of crucifixion comes to our mind. Just keep that in the back of your mind when you think about it, that only the worst vile and worthless people were crucified and they did it to Jesus. All right. All right, moving on. Let's see here. So anyway, they're going to be coming and they're going, coming and examining him soon. And at least Felix is going to be able to hear about this. So verse 31, it says, Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, they took Paul and they brought him by night to the Antipatris. That's the region there. And it says the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and they returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province, you know, Paul, where are you from? And when he understood that he came from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. Now, this is normal. Now, I know you might say, okay, well, this is just kind of basic day-to-day stuff, but it's recorded in the Scripture. Therefore, it is very much worthy of understanding. So the idea is in a Roman court, as well as it should have been in a Jewish court, you don't just get to walk in and do whatever you want to. There's going to be a person, like in our courts today, that has been accused of a crime, and there must be accusers. These people need to come. They need to present their case. They need to say why they believe it is so, present witnesses, and we need to find out if this crime is such a crime that would even affect the Roman Empire. If it did not, he might tell them to go and handle it according to their law. If he will allow them to do that, but certainly they're not going to turn around and allow them to just kill anybody they want to. Now, let me go back and say a couple of things. You will hear people say that the Jews were not allowed to carry out capital punishment. That, for all intents and purposes, okay, at least on face value, is true. You weren't supposed to go around and just kill people at a whim. The Romans now were in control, and they also had their legal system, and you weren't supposed to just go around killing folk. There were certain things that they did allow them to do, that they were given special, I guess, dispensation to be able to do, but you just couldn't go around killing folk. However, does that mean that the Jews never killed anyone? Well, no, because if you remember Stephen the martyr, right? You remember whenever they, Stephen's there, the miracles are taking place, they're going to stone him because he proclaims to them that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he explains, you have murdered, you know, the giver of life. And anyway, they're getting ready to kill him. And he looks up and he says, I see uh, Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, the power of God, that is. And they run at him, they gnash him with their teeth, and then they stone him and they kill him. They murdered him. They stoned him to death. Paul even consented to it. And you say, well, how did they get away with it? Well, in some situations, the Romans would allow certain things. They'd say, okay, you know, it kind of happened in the heat of passion. They disciplined, do what they needed to do, and everything just carried on. 
but also understand that wasn't because Romans just didn't care. It's because sometimes things just happen on the spur of the moment and you're trying to keep the peace. Okay? So just little nuggets that we can keep in the back of our minds. Okay, so he says, when your accusers get here, we'll hear the case. So over to chapter 24. Okay, so Paul's going to be accused of sedition. You're going to see exactly how these charges break down. But it says, now after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders uh, and a certain orator named Tertullus. Now, Tertullus is one of these, how can I say this? He's one of these silver-tongued devils, okay? He's going to stand there, and he's going to be pouring honey in your ear at the same time he's stabbing you, okay? So they're bringing down the person that they think can, you know, talk the birds out of the trees. He's the one that's going to be really, really smooth. He's going to impress Felix at this time. So they bring him in. So these, so Tertullus comes down and says, these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Verse 2. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, now notice how he phrases this. He says, seeing that through you we enjoy peace. Okay, he's talking to, to Felix here. He says, seeing that we enjoy peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness, nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further. I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. You know, when people talk like that, I'm one of the people that like to stand up and say, okay, I don't, I don't have time for you to sit here and kiss up to me. I don't need you to pretend. Just go ahead and say what you want to say because you really don't care anything about me. Verse 5, it's for, it says, For we have found this man a plague. Wow, that makes you feel good, doesn't it? Be called a plague. I found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. How do you like that? Here's another word popping up. Nazarenes. Yes, from where our church of the Nazarene gets its name from. The idea is that these are people who are worshipers, honorers of this fellow named Jesus of Nazareth. So the Nazarene, these Nazarenes, they want to call them something else other than giving them any kind of legitimacy to them. So they're just people that follow this Nazarene. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander, uh, you know, Lysias, the one that, that took him and brought him there, came by and with great violence... They were the ones being violent, but with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before you by examining him yourself. You may ascertain all these things of which we now accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. All right. So looking at verse 10, really quickly, it says, Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him that he was able to speak, he answers, Inasmuch as I know, you know, he's trying to be a little sweet too here, he needs to. Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, 
I do the more cheerfully answer for myself because you may ascertain, let me flip my page here, that it is more, no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem. 12 days ago I was in Jerusalem, he says. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting a riot in the crowd. He says, let's go back. Let's look at the record. I have been causing no trouble whatsoever. I went to the temple, but there was no dissension. There was no dispute there. He said, either in the synagogues or in the city, I haven't caused any trouble there. You can go back and check. Now, can they prove these things of which they now accuse me? But this I confess to you, that according to the way, that's the way the church referred to themselves as people of the way. Now, according to the way, which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, and there will be a resurrection. Listen to this, that there will be a resurrection from the dead, both of the just and the unjust, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and toward man. So he brings it up. He says the real issue is going to be this resurrection. Well, everybody knew this. The Jews knew that, and the Jews even believed this. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple. He says, I was there fulfilling. Okay, you remember they told him to to go in there with those who took the Nazarite vow, say, go with him, purify yourself, pay this. You know, show that you do indeed love God, which is what he does. He said, uh, and found me purified in the temple. He didn't, you know, desecrate it, neither with a mob nor with any kind of tumult or harsh uh, behavior. They ought to have been here before you. In other words, if they're going to say these things happen, they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. No, as a matter of fact, they struck him. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, stating among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. So once again, we come full circle to this, the resurrection. Everything hinging on the resurrection. But people, you might say and look back and say, well, if we're talking about the resurrection, there really shouldn't be any big deal about it because after all, many of the Jews, maybe not the Sadducees, but most people in Israel reading from the word of God believe that one day there would be a resurrection from the dead. Here's the problem. The resurrection of the dead is being taught in Christ Jesus, in him the resurrection of the dead. In him, the forgiveness of sin. In him, you know, people will be made right with God. And that's a problem because it not only extended to the Jews, it also extends to the Gentile. And because of that, that was a no-go in many, many people's minds. So we have Paul before the governing authority now, and we're going to see here shortly that he's going to be going before some other ones before he winds up going to Jerusalem. Now, I know tonight was mainly a historical walk of what Paul did, but you have to understand why Paul came to be where he is. It's kind of like whenever you're studying the Old Testament and you have uh, Abraham, okay, for instance. You know, yes, you've got Adam and Eve. You have human life coming in there. We've got the destruction because of the flood, Tower of Babylon, all that kind of stuff. But then you get to this person. You've got Abraham. 
And you've got Abraham coming in here, and what is the big deal with Abraham? Well, obviously, there is a promise that God made to Abraham through his seed. Well, how do we get to Isaac? Okay, well, it's important. We get to Isaac. Well, then you've got uh, Isaac, and then you're going to have Jacob and Esau. Well, what's the big deal about that? Well, through Jacob, we're going to wind up with the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, what's the big deal with the 12 tribes of Israel? Okay, you're going to wind up with Joseph. And then you wind up with Joseph in Egypt. And whenever you wind up in Egypt, you wind up with Moses. What I'm saying is each one of these people, however simple it may seem, is a piece of a jigsaw puzzle, a divine puzzle for that matter, that puts all of this stuff together. Amen? All right. Any questions tonight? Oh, I need to clarify something the other that I said. You know, like I told you, I go back and I listen to my message. I want to clarify something about male and female I said last week about in the resurrection. I am not saying that in the resurrection that you are not male and that you are not female. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that whenever we talk about human beings in the resurrection before God, the Bible says we are like the angels of God. That is procreation for us is something that exists for us here and now. In that future kingdom, there is no indication that we can see. Maybe there will be, but I'm telling you from what we can see, the Bible says we will be like the angels of God, neither given nor taking in marriage. Therefore, we don't have procreation, that is, sexual relations in that kingdom. So what we talk about now, differentiation in sex, okay, that is something really primarily dealing for us in the here and now for the purposes of our children are coming. I'm not trying to say in the resurrection that you cease to be who you are. Even Christ Jesus was recognizable. We're all recognizable. And for all intents and purposes, people, I'm not trying to be cute here. I believe that we will have differing plumbing, okay? But the point still is this. People often ask, well, what then? What then in heaven? If we still have organs that are different from one another, the big question is, is what then in heaven? Why does it exist? Well, actually, the Bible doesn't answer that other than it is part of your identity. Now, people, I'm really careful whenever I start talking about this stuff because you can go down a rabbit hole that gets really, really weird. There's some things that we just don't know, and there's certain things that aren't answered because the question is, is in the kingdom to come, if we still maintain the characteristics of male and female, do we still maintain the characteristics of intestines bowels you'll see where i'm going with this if you think about it and what you wind up doing is going down a really weird road of what we will and will not do in heaven do we eat all our food or do we have waste and after a while you just want to look at somebody and say i just will find out when i get there okay i don't particularly want to know so Please understand what I'm saying. Whenever I'm talking about gender specifically for marriage and all those other things, I'm not saying in heaven you do not maintain your identity. You do. You maintain. I will still be Shane. I'll still be a dude. You'll still be such and such, and you may still be female. But understand we stand before God as children of God very much like our children are here and now with us. They're not necessarily running out and procreating, but they're still our children. Okay? So... Please do not think that I'm saying that you are going to be some sort of non-male, female, strange thing that we 
Okay, when you get to heaven, you don't get to identify. You still are, okay? Let's just leave it that way. Okay, now on a very weird note of the evening, moving on. Is there anyone tonight that would like special prayer? We do have some that needs prayer. Okay, come on down. And I tell you what, we'll have our worship team come up, and we'll let them sing us a song, and we'll prepare to pray for some folks. Turn this up. Just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus Jesus, how I trust how I I love it whenever people come forward to pray for their friends, their neighbors, co-workers. And as my sister comes today, you said um, last name is Fleener. It's going to be somebody that you've worked with and is dealing with uh, a brain tumor, very aggressive. And you're praying for her because she's suffering with a lot of effects that come from it. Well, surgery coming up on Wednesday, but it's not too big for God. And let's see what God's going to do. All right. So my sister, according to the word of God, we are going to anoint you with oil. We anoint you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And Father, according to the word of God, you said if there is any sick among us to let them call for the elders of the church and have them to pray for the sick. And you said, Father, that you would lift up the sick and that you would heal them. And if they have committed any sins, that you would forgive them. So Father, we join our hearts right now. Father, we lift up Miss Fleener right now. We call her by name. And we ask you, we call upon the name of the Lord God, our Savior, our God, King, who is well able to heal all things. Nothing is impossible for you. Father, we ask you, even as she goes in for surgery, that you would watch over her. We ask you to heal her. We ask you to protect her. Father, breathe into her nostrils the breath of life. And we ask you to protect her. Heal her today. Heal her, God. Do that which only God can do. Breathe into her your grace. We proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the victory of the cross, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of our Savior. Bless her in Jesus' name and heal her and keep her. And bless his family in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Like I say, we're always running a two-for-one. Anybody else? All righty, all righty. Father, I ask your blessings upon this, your people. 
Watch over them and keep them. Father, may your love and light shine through them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.